Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are coming to you with a fresh episode. It's been a couple weeks. We uh, took a week off. With uh, It's been a busy couple weeks for uh, several of us uh, throughout the summer. So we took a week off, but we're back with a very special episode as we're going to be talking uh, about one of our favorite directors, uh, Mr. Quentin Tarantino, today. So uh, my name is Terry Plucknett. I am your host. Joining me, as always are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking this fine evening? I'm drinking out of the People's Republic of Lawrence, Kansas, some wonderful Copperhead Pale Ale from uh, Free State Brewing Company out of Lawrence, Kansas. It's my, it's my favorite Free State uh, brew. Uh, I think last episode I was drinking at Astra, which is almost as good, but it's not quite the Copperhead. I don't think you were drinking at Astra because we, we made a comment that you're going to have to drink Ad Astra when we watch Ad Astra. Oh, okay. But you're drinking something else that you didn't like at all. It, it, but it was a free state. Un, that sounds unlike me, but uh, I'll, I'll go with that. Was it last podcast that you were afraid of how badly you liked the beer, so you had a PBR to wash it down? Or was that a podcast uh, before? Uh, it, well, that's a silly question to ask, as, assuming I would remember that. <laughs> All right, Todd. It's what are you drinking? It's documented somewhere. It's 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 documented somewhere. We should. Have I am look drinking. That up. Uh, it is a mix of the Kraken and some like peach protein flavored water because drinking the Kraken <clears> by <throat> itself is kind of gross, and uh, it's really all the only flavored thing I had in this house. So that's what I went with. It Dude. tastes. I'm not going to say it tastes good, but it definitely tastes. It, it tastes. It, it tastes something. It tastes. Well done, Todd. All right, so uh, for me, uh, so when we started doing this What Are We Drinking uh, uh, segment, it was inspired by a podcast that Todd and I listen to. It is the Husker Doc Talk podcast that talks everything Nebraska Cornhuskers football. And they uh, always talk about what they're drinking because they're sponsored by Infusion Brewing Company out of Omaha, Nebraska. Well, one of the reasons that we've been so busy is I took a visit to, uh, to Nebraska a couple weeks ago. Uh, to visit family. And one of the things I made it a mission of mine when I was there was I had to get myself some infusion beer and bring it home. So I did. And so tonight, in honor of the Husker Doc Talk podcast, I am drinking from Infusion Brewing Company out of Omaha, Nebraska. This is their Vanilla Bean Blonde Ale. And uh, it, it's it's actually pretty good. It's a soft flavor. It, it definitely has a vanilla taste to it. Um, but it still tastes like beer too. Like sometimes you can get some of those flavored beers that just tastes like, you know, like there's a little bit of alcohol and a soda. That's not what this tastes like. It tastes like beer with just like an aftertaste of the vanilla, which is pretty good. And, and it, it's a light beer. It's 4.8 ABV, but that's a, that's a whole lot better than what I've been drinking. I just got back from a weekend in Salt Lake City where the max they can have is a 4% on their beer. So, uh, uh, it's That's definitely pressing. Yeah, yeah. Any beer brewed in Utah has to have a max of four percent, and if you order like a Bud or a Coors or something like that, three point two percent is the most it can have. Oh, oh those Mormons. Living large. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, 
So, anyways, but this is not that. This is Nebraska beer, and it's vanilla, and it's tasty. So, cheers. All right. Well, as always, uh, find us on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, review there. We want to be uh, found by as many people as possible. And subscribing, giving us a rating, and even writing a review can definitely get us up on the lists so more people can find us. Uh, you can also find us on our Facebook page. You can find Zach and I on Twitter. Uh, we're always posting stuff about our uh, about our podcast there as well. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. Well, let's hop into what we're doing. Uh, like I said, we're talking all things Quentin Tarantino today, and that is because this weekend. Uh, for our movie review, we are reviewing his brand new movie, the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino, and that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Fried, you Nazi bastards! Seems this world. So, Todd, I'm gonna go to you first. Tell me what this movie is all about and what you thought of it. Alright, this movie takes us to 1969 Hollywood and pretty much Quentin Tarantino's recollections and his uh, sort of fairy tale about what he remembers and what he wants to remember about 1969 Hollywood. It follows a few characters. One of them is uh, Rick Dalton, played by Oscar winner Leonardo DiCaprio. And he plays an actor who is aging and past his prime. He has like this emotional, psychological breakdown when he gets some like Real, a really honest critique by this uh, agent uh, played by Al Pacino played, named Marvin Schwartz, and he tells him, you know, you can't keep playing TV villains because it's going to completely sap your potential to be a leading man, and you should embrace the Italian westerns and uh, really and uh, be the hero of the story. And it also follows his stuntman Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, uh, and he's also his, like, best friend. He pretty much does everything for Rick Dalton, including, like, driving his drunk ass everywhere and uh, fixing his satellite dish and, like, really, as he puts it, uh, helps carry the load. And uh, it also follows uh, a real-life character, uh, Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, and she is Rick's next-door neighbor with her uh, husband and popular film director Roman Polanski. She's got a new movie coming out, and she has a chance meeting with Charles Manson, and it's, like, on the fringe of becoming involved in, like, a, this lot bigger storyline. The movie really is uh, watching these characters without a whole lot of plot. It's, uh, it's just, like, a couple days uh, that are portrayed. It's, like, watching the day-to-day -day of this, like, old Hollywood, how it functioned, the ideologies, the style... And it's like it's relaxed and sort of like a hangout movie, which in that way it's a lot like Jackie Brown in terms of style, tone, and like its portrayal of L.A. And it's like Pulp Fiction also in like how it in the how the screenplay is written, and it's like in Glorious Bastards and making this like vintage Tarantino story set in, 
with the backdrop of something a lot more significant. Uh, and I mean, I, I love this movie. It's uh, from the opening like TV interview all the way until the end credits, which like garnered an applause, which is really rare to, for like a random theater to have applause at the end of a movie. I couldn't stop smiling like the whole movie. It's I think it's the most effortlessly effortlessly funny movie that uh, Tarantino's ever made. Uh, the casting is just so perfect. They hardly have to act because they're just like so perfectly realized in their characters. Like DiCaprio does his thing. He's gonna get nominated for best actor. It's like some cross between Jordan Belfort and Howard Hughes. And uh, Margot Robbie just—I mean, she is Sharon Tate. It's actually kind of eerie. And Pitt, uh, Pitt just steals the show. I mean, I, I think he's going to win Best Supporting Actor, his uh, unless he actually gets put in Best Actor category, which he probably should. Uh, it's the mo- I think it's the most perfect movie star role that he's ever done. I mean, he's had movies that show in his range more, but this is just so—it's just so perfectly Brad Pitt. I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. Uh, and the, the cast of cameos is just unreal. Like, I mean, you got this, like, reunion of the Girl Next Door actors with Emile Hirsch, Timothy Oliphant, <laughs> and James Ramar. I was just like, this is so, that's so random that they're all in the same movie. And then you got Bruce, uh, uh, Bruce Dern taking over for Burt Reynolds, which was, which was really fun to see. And you got Luke Perry, Michael Madsen, Dakota Fanning. Then you got, like, the daughter of Kevin Smith, the daughter of Andy McDowell, and the daughter of... Uh, Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke all playing Manson girls, which was uh, interesting. With Lena I mean, Dunham. Just like, yeah, with Lena Dunham also. Uh, you, you, and you just know a director is at the height of his powers when you get those kind of actors to play these like seemingly insignificant roles. Like you got Damian Lewis playing Steve McQueen, which was awesome, it, and, and as well as like the like the mocks uh, Great Escape bit. But uh, it, it reminded me of like uh, uh, the guy who played. Uh, Harmon Rab and John, uh, who played John Wayne in the the uh, David James Elliott, yeah, in the uh, Trumbo. In Trumbo, yeah, it, it was just like uncanny how perfect that Cassie was, but it was like a, a reasonably big actor playing like this part for uh, basically half a scene, and uh, the movie's not really what you expect. I, like, I, like it reminded me of when like you heard about the Social Network and it was like you know the the David Fincher Facebook movie. Well, this movie was supposed to be like the Tarantino Charles Manson murder mi- uh, movie, and that's just like not it at all. Like this is it's like a love letter to the like Quentin's favorite era of Hollywood, and he he he's described it as like so personal to him, like it's his Roma, you know, like it's his his memory movie, and it because it's like achingly nostalgic, it's like packed with references and callbacks and like crazy indulgence and comedic violence and. As nasty as the streets look, like I can, I, I just kind of want to hang out with these characters. Like, I mean, it, it reminds me of like when you watch like Days and Confused or something like that. I just, I kind of want to be in that world with these characters. And it, I also, one thing I noticed is there's like a different type of editing that that was going on here. Like, it was, it's not the typical Tarantino thing where there's like these extended dialogue scenes. There's like some tracking shots that are like Scorsese-esque, but most of the, like most of the time, like when you have a scene that would normally be like a really long dialogue scene. It's, like, cut with, like, these, like, schizo flashback things and stuff. Like, I can only think of Kill Bill Volume 1 as being something that kind of did something like that, which was really different, and uh, it was, I mean, it made the movie kind of energetic. You could just tell that he had so many ideas and so much he wanted to pack into this movie that the 161 minutes felt kind of tight. Like, I mean, it could, I mean, I think it could have been an hour longer or, like, a mini series kind of thing, but, but I, I mean, I think it honestly felt pretty short. And I, I just think the movie, it's a, it's a joy to watch. It's the most fun I've had at the theater in probably two years. And I think it's in the top half of Tarantino's movies. And I, it's just like this bizarre, original, 
like surprising, hilarious kind of masterpiece. And I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me, but I give it four stars. Okay, okay. Zach, what are you thinking on this one? All right, well, it's always tough going into a Tarantino. First of all, that was one of Todd's best reviews. I mean, you, you absolutely nailed pretty much everything with that movie. Yeah, I don't know well if, done, you, Todd. if you think of your reviews Thanks. thought out in advance, but that was that was really spot on. Um, all right, so going into Tarantino movies is always tough because, you know, he's, he's, the, he's God. You know, like as Brad Pitt said, the set is church, he is God, and in church there are no heretics. And... Uh, yeah, so it's tough to, you know, properly assess it, seeing as, you know, we talked ad nauseum about uh, the movies that, that we love. I mean, the, this Tarantino, you know, he idolizes uh, his youth of the 1960s. Well, we idolize uh, his movies, right? Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill. Uh, it's hard to top those movies. I mean, it's one of the challenges that great directors have is consistently reinventing uh, themselves and trying out new things. Very few directors succeed at it. Um, this was a tough movie for me. Uh, I'm not as thrilled about it as, as Todd was. I'm not as entranced by it. Um, I think there were long stretches of it that felt kind of meandering and, and ponderous. Um, we know that because it's Tarantino doing this movie, you know, actually the, the, the parallels to Roma is really apropos because I also felt that Roma was kind of stretched out at times. On the one hand, you could say it's, you know, uh, nostalgic, it's sentimental, it's someone remembering their childhood, whatever. On the other hand, you could say it's sort of uh, indulgent in a way, because for those who didn't grow up in the 1960s in, in L.A. or loved these, the, the movies that he's constantly making allusions to, maybe it doesn't have the same uh, effect. You know, th th this movie is so chock full of cinematic references, as is all of his movies, that if you don't, I think it's hard that if, if you don't fully understand the references, I don't know if it goes past you. Um, I think the audience I saw it with, they went, a lot of the references went past then. I, I don't think it was a very uh, intellectual audience. But anyway, that, that, that shouldn't affect uh, my opinion of the movie. I loved Brad Pitt in this movie. I thought he was a fab... His, his character was fabulous as Cliff. I thought his scenes were fantastic. I thought uh, the rapport between him and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton was really memorable, funny. Um, it, it's a sort of complex dynamic that is tinged a little bit with ten tension, but also with a little bit of this kind of mutual acceptance that both of them are on the downside of their careers. And, uh, and this is what a lot of critics have talked about, too, is how their story sort of parallels with, with, with Sharon Tate's as she's sort of on the uptick of her career and, and how their lives sort of coincide. Um, like Inglorious Bastards, like Django Unchained, you know, Tarantino plays a little fast and loose with history. Uh, the title is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so I think his, his rationalizing would be that, you know, this is, this is a fantasy. It's sort of, it, it's, it's more sentimental than it is supposed to be historically accurate. Um, I guess I was, I was maybe one of those people, like Todd was saying, I, I was sort of hoping for the Tarantino Charles Manson movie, but, you know, you can't rate a movie on what you hope it is and what it ultimately is, so I, I can't really grade the movie down for that. All I can really say is that uh, there was such great premise in the first hour. I loved the flashbacks. I liked how the characters were, were building up their personalities and their backstories. Uh, I thought the scenes, pretty much a lot of the scenes with Brad Pitt worked really well, particularly his confrontation with the character of Pussycat when he goes to Spawn Ranch was really well done. The Bruce Stern scene was fabulous. I think, I mean, if, if we can give out Oscar nominations for one scene, you know, Bruce Stern deserves an Oscar nomination for this movie. 
However, I think there was a point when it started to lo- I started to lose interest in the movie. I thought the extended scene, and I will try not to go too much into spoilers here, but the extended scene on with Leo's uh, uh, movie that he's making. I it just I, I didn't understand it. I don't I don't I don't I didn't see the point of it. Um, it felt too long, and <coughs> I didn't. <coughs> I didn't really understand the flash forward to the ending either, and I don't really know what Tarantino's trying to say. Is he saying that, you know, the older generation could have revived Hollywood, could have saved Hollywood from its decline in the 1970s? I don't really know. The ending, I feel like, is sort of a cop-out in a lot of ways. I feel like it's derivative of some of his earlier work. I won't say which films, but I think if you know them, if you've seen this movie, you know which ending I'm talking about. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. It just kind of got ponderous and meandering. So without going too much further, I give this movie a solid three stars. However, I think like all great filmmakers, you have to watch these movies multiple times to fully grasp them, to fully understand them. This is a good movie. Maybe someday it will be in my top five Tarantino movies. I'm I'm not really sure, but I need to give it a little more time. So I agree with a lot of the points Todd makes. Todd makes me want to see this movie again, but right now I can only give it three stars. All right. Yeah, I'm kind of in a same in a similar spot as Zach. Uh, I'm probably going to give it three and a half stars right now. Um, And what you just said there at the end is is the same spot I'm in is I need I need to revisit it. I want to live with it a little bit longer and it'll probably move up on my list, which has happened with some of Tarantino's movies in the past. I was very unimpressed with Reservoir Dogs when I first saw it. And then a couple years later, I saw it again and realized the masterpiece it was. Um, But uh, now this movie, I, I would say this is. When you go into a Tarantino movie, I get so excited for it because nobody makes movies quite like Quentin Tarantino. Nobody writes dialogue quite like Quentin Tarantino. No one sets up a movie quite like he does. And this is probably the least Tarantino of all of Tarantino's movies, just in style. Uh, all of Tarantino's movies seem to be, okay, here's what here's our setting. Now, let the characters play. And he writes this rich dialogue that uh, that runs the story. Well, this movie is is not run by the dialogue. It's not run by the characters. It's run by the setting because that's the main character. The main character in this movie is 1960s Hollywood. Uh, it's it's not Leo's character. It's not Brad Pitt's character. It is it is this time period, which makes it so different than any of Tarantino's movies. I mean, even if you look like a look at a movie like Inglorious Bastards, uh, that movie is a movie that is. Uh, has that historical setting, but it's still so much character driven. Uh, this and dialogue driven. This one, not not so much. Um, with that said, there are some amazing characters in it. I love how he has the clout to uh, get movie stars to play his little bit roles as movie stars. I mean, the, like Todd said, being able to see Damian Lewis come in and play Steve McQueen, and seeing Timothy Oliphant come in to play this uh, this lead of. Int- TV show and, and all this stuff. I, I loved seeing that. Uh, or, or one that you guys didn't mention. I love the little flashback scene with Bruce Lee. I mm-hmm. thought that that was, that was a great scene. Um, and, uh, and what makes this movie, what it is, is that chemistry. Like you said, that chemistry between Leo and Brad Pitt, they, they do, they do amazing things. My favorite scene, the best scene in the movie, uh, is, uh, the scene where they sit down to watch an, a TV episode that Rick Dalton was in and you can hear them giving their commentary as they watch it. It felt like I was watching like some strange flashback version of mystery science theater 3000 written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, it, it was amazing. I loved it. 
Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a slight disappointment because it wasn't what I was expecting out of a Tarantino movie. But I still really enjoyed it. I Zach mentioned the ending being a little derivative. I absolutely loved the ending. I I I was laughing out loud at the ending. Um, because it, it it gave you a flash of what a, of a regular Tarantino movie, but um, but yeah, it wasn't what I expected, which is why I need to live with it a little longer. But I still really enjoyed it, so I'm I'm probably gonna give it three and a half stars right now, and uh, and see where it goes from there. Do you guys think that the movie they kept mentioning where Leo has the flamethrower and he's, like, killing the Nazis, do you think that, like, is this all, all of Tarantino's movies are connected, do you think that that movie is supposed to be, like, the reenactment of Inglorious Bastards, uh, the end of Inglorious Bastards, kind of? Like, is, is yes. that supposed to be, like, that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You, 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 yeah, I, I mean, I... I, th- I, mean, I also think it's awesome that he has a flamethrower in his tool shed. One thing I thought that I thought was pretty awesome was like when I was thinking about the Timothy Oliphant scene, I was thinking like if that was his only day on set or something like that, and he walked into Leo acting the way he was acting, you think he was just like, man, this guy is crazy because <laughs> when he's like, you know, like line, and then just like, oh. I'm gonna get it, oh, you know, like, I, and he's just sitting there, just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, he, but it's like, I, if he only had like a few pages of dialogue that he was supposed to do, I don't know. Well, and, things and like that. I mean, there's probably a lot of that too, because like, there are all these big name actors probably just showed up for one day on set, and they're like, wow, this is this is nuts. <laughs> and, and there's so many, there's so many little bits like that. That was another one of my favorite scenes is watching them film that that tv episode with timothy oliphant the little girl the little girl was great too but um watching them film that uh was just an acting showcase with for leo and and oliphant it it was it was amazing i loved it i thought that was the worst scene in the movie oh really oh yeah i was like come on Let's move on. We we get it. We, we, you know, he's putting on the acting chops. He's putting on one last great performance. I guess, kind of like what you said, Terry, you know, the expectations and the reality, maybe there's just a disconnect. But I really wanted this movie to be more about Sharon Tate, and I wanted it to be more about the culture of the 1960s. And, I mean, a lot of people are praising it for its portrait of the 1960s, but it, it's not really. I mean, it has, uh, you know... 60s uh, Los Angeles uh, cityscapes in it and 60s clothing and 60s music in it but I don't know I feel like this I mean and and the writing too like there's not a lot of like memorable lines or speeches I mean this movie is sort of surprising in a way in that it sort of eschews a lot of the kind of typical Tarantino extended monologues that we would normally see except for save the one scene that you're talking about Terry which is you know in in Leo's film Um, it's just it's kind of long-winded as Todd mentioned they're kind of long takes and I don't know when I think of Pulp Fiction when I think of Kill Bill I think of you know flashy exciting editing conventions and again i'm not saying that tarantino needs to to to, you know repeat himself in that direction but i I think this movie's bloated at 161 minutes i feel like there's about 20 25 minutes that that could be cut and i'm not really sure i don't know to to me it sort of demeans the 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 really good parts of the movie that's crazy no i think i think i mean it 
I feel like it could have been 40 minutes longer, like, easily, and it would have had no problem. I, I feel like it, it didn't have enough room to breathe. Like, it, it, like, we were hanging out with these characters, and I feel like everything was really tight, and it really cut scenes off when it could have kept going like a Tarantino movie normally would have. I'm a little closer to Todd on that. I, I think it definitely was, of all of Tarantino's movies, it might have felt the most lived in, where by the end of it, you feel like you've just had this hangout session with all these people. But, yeah. And there's still so much that could have gone on after it. Like, I mean, like the, the last like 20 minutes, like could have been 40 minutes, but it was like 20 minutes because it was like it was like, really truncated. I guess I guess my problem too is that like the the reason the first hour for me worked so well is I thought the movie was building up suspense to the Sharon Tate murders. I thought that's where where Tarantino was going with it, and so this sort of meandering, you know, lackadaisical attitude. Okay, you know, it makes sense if you're building up to something suspenseful, but then like midway through the second hour, it's like, what is this movie really trying to do? It's much less about Sharon Tate than than we realize, and and to to have that kind of energy sort of misplaced feels like i i don't know it doesn't feel it that it lost the suspense for me i was hoping this movie would be just the days leading up to the murder and that would have been really fascinating to watch but instead he uses these other sort of i feel like sort of gimmicky motions well but he wanted to tell a story of this era and you're not going to tell that story if, if like sharon tate roman polanski and and charles manson aren't involved in it like you can't tell you can't tell the story of that era of hollywood without them and so they had to be yeah, characters I, in the movie, but it's still a Tarantino movie. I mean, they wouldn't have two fake characters be the main characters if they didn't have something you know, a, a lot bigger to do with the story than than the main characters, or else it would be like a biopic, or like a it would be billed as a true story. Yeah, I really thought Sharon Tate's role in it ended up just being that representation of young Hollywood in the '60s and and just how they how they were. Um, and I thought I thought it was really telling, and you figured this out kind of fairly quickly, that it wasn't going the direction you were talking about, Zach, when, you know, the Roman Polanski character is only on screen for, what, maybe a minute? Same with the Charles Manson character. I mean, they have no screen time. They're, they're, they just don't show up. Well, yeah, but they weren't even really involved with the murders, if you think about it. I mean, maybe That's Manson was true. Wasn't. true. So I, I wasn't surprised to see that. I guess another problem I have with the movie, and again, you, you rate the movie for what you see and not what, what you don't see, but I feel like this movie was really similar to Hail Caesar. I feel like what Tarantino was trying to do was almost identical to what the Coen brothers tried to do with, with Hail Caesar, and that was sort of like considered a minor Coen brothers movie, and I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like this movie has that many grander ambitions except to paint this kind of you know funny... <laughs> bromance between the two lead characters which works but i don't think the larger aspirations of this movie really work yeah it, it i think it definitely has uh has been kind of a polarizing movie um but even in in what we're talking about i mean th this is a thrice approved movie we're all say we're all giving it thumbs up it's just is it it's is a it a masterpiece or is it is it just a good movie it's a thrice approved movie, but it's like, it, it's like, um, I don't know, the buildup, maybe so much of it was about the buildup and the anticipation for it. These characters are so good and so well written and so fascinating to watch. I mean, just watching Brad Pitt feed his dog is a great scene. And like, 
you know, I wanted. It was a great dog performance. It was a great dog. It was a top five dog performances ever. It was a great dog performance. I wish there were more scenes like that. I mean, um, but the but it just kind of fades away. It, it, I, I, I I don't know. Um, these are great characters. I want to know more about them. I bet there's some awesome deleted scenes from this movie. I, I hear what you're saying, Todd, that you could watch more of this movie, but it's it's like a contradiction because it feels like simultaneously too short and too bloated. I don't know. I don't know. I need to come revisit this movie in five years. Maybe I'll I, feel I entirely feel, different. I feel like Brad Pitt's... Uh, one, Brad Pitt... Can we just agree Brad Pitt hasn't aged in like 15, 20 years? Like... Isn't he like almost yeah. sixty now? In... Yeah, he's probably mid fifties. Yeah, yeah, he he looks the exact same as he did in the Mexican. Like that was when he like grew the longer hair, and then he started looking the exact same for the last yes ever since. And and, and this character, as I was watching it, I kept on thinking this character is like some weird combination of his characters from Inglorious Bastards and Burn After Reading. Yeah. Like, yeah. like Aldo Rain would grow up and be that stuntman. He definitely, the very first scene, I was like, that was an Aldo Rain line. Like, when, when he's like, he's like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> or the, li- the line, it, it's kind of a silly line, but it's one that keeps coming back to me, is when he's talking to, to Bruce Lee, and he goes, if anybody accidentally kills anybody, they're going to jail. It's called manslaughter. And like that, that's that is a that is an Aldo Rain line. So, do you guys agree with me? He's going to win Best Supporting Actor, right? I, I, when I was watching, I was like, this is a role that wins Best Supporting Actor. This is the best role of his career. It might not be the best performance, but this is the role that will win him an Oscar. I hope so. I would have no Mike problem get, with that. But but it might get caught in that limbo of if it's a truly a supporting actor performance or not. I mean, it depends on how yeah, the but, studio, studio chooses to market it. Well, yeah, but or there's not often that you know. Brad Pitt is second fiddle to another actor's star power in a movie. Like, I mean, he's... I don't think they give two Best Actor nominations anymore. Like, that hasn't happened in, what, like, since, like, 1984? It's, I don't think that they would do that. And Leo is definitely getting nominated. I, I just think Brad Pitt's... He's gonna go support and he's gonna win. It would be great if he did. I, I would. I would love that. But, uh... Let, let's uh let's move on. Like we said, this is thrice approved. Zach's giving it three stars. I'm giving it three and a half. Uh, Todd's giving it four. We see it showing up all over uh, all over the Oscars coming up uh, at the end of the year, beginning next year. And uh, and yeah, this, biggest this opening is... of Tarantino's uh, career. Yeah, I saw that. That is crazy. Biggest opening weekend of his career, considering the hits that he's had. That's that's crazy. And it's Just... like a top twenty R-rated opening ever too. Just shows just how much how much anticipation was uh, was behind this movie. <clears throat> okay, so we are going to move on and continue to talk about Tarantino as we get into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings, not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And today for power rankings, uh, the last time we did this, I won. And uh, Todd, what are the uh, what are the the uh, the scores now of our game here? Uh, in third place, we have Zach with eight point four, and second place Terry with eight point six, and I have thirteen point six. 
That's right. That that point two is very important. I'm not going to even worry about the fact that you know Todd's beating me by ten. Five. <laughs> Five. Whatever. Anyways, <laughs> it feels like ten. <laughs> so I got to pick the category, ten and like weeks. I said, what? Ten weeks. Ten, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, I got to pick the category, and like I said, we're going to talk. Uh, more Tarantino, as our category for this podcast, for this Power Rankings, is Top 5 Minor Tarantino Characters. Uh, so, minor characters in any of his movies. Uh, we could only pick one character per movie. And uh, and Todd and I, at one point in the last couple weeks, brainstormed who would be uh, disqualified from this list. And, uh, and made sure that we all had a very clear picture of who the minor characters were, or ba- mainly who weren't minor characters, who couldn't you pick. Um, and so that that's our list here. I think it's going to be a pretty good one because, like we said, Tarantino writes so many great characters. So uh, so we're going to go from there. On this, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Give us your number five. All right, well, my number five character comes from Kill Bill Volume 1, and we are considering Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 separate movies, correct? Correct. Okay, so I'm going to go with uh, the one of the great swordsmiths of all time, if not the greatest swordsmith of all time, uh, Hattori Hanzo, who um, spends a month making his sword, and uh, it's fought over, and you know it's considered uh, you know the, the, the greatest sword ever made, except in places like El Paso, where you can pawn it for two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, and he is retired from making swords, but he makes a sword for one Beatrix Kiddo slash the Bride. And the only thing that isn't great about Hattori Hanzo is apparently uh, his sushi. Um, but uh, he's an awesome character, and uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time in Kill Bill Volume 1. You want to see more of him, which is precisely the point of minor characters in the Tarantino universe. Someday I fully ex- I, I fully expect another appearance in Kill Bill Volume 3, which has been, uh, news has been resuscitated for that movie this past week. Uh, he's awesome, and uh, I love him. Sonny Chiba. Yes, the great Sonny Chiba. Good choice. All right, I'm going to go next. Number five on my list <clears throat> comes from Inglorious Bastards. I'm going with uh, Lieutenant Archie Hickox, played by Michael Fassbender. Um, this was uh, my introduction to Michael Fassbender, was seeing him in this movie. Um, and I, he steals every scene he's in uh, when uh, when they're in the, in the bar, in the basement there, and he breaks out of his... Uh, Breaks out of his German and is like, well, if I'm going to die, I mean, so I'll talk the language of the kings, and uh, and goes on that monologue there. I, it's just, it it shows in that small, tiny performance just how great Michael Fassbender is, and kind of predicted the stardom he was about to have, and and it's just it's just such a great, great character with a very minor part. Like Zach said, the reason we we pick the characters we pick for this is we want to see more about them. And this was one I would have loved to see. I mean, he, he could have been like like the second lead with, with Brad Pitt in that movie, and it would have been great. But uh, Lieutenant Archie Hickox is my number five. Nice. So, so strange to think that 
so strange to think that Michael Fassbender got his career started really with Tarantino. We forget that sometimes, but he's so great in that movie. Well, I think probably his biggest break was the year before was Hunger, right? Hunger yeah, came out the that, year before Inglourious Bastards. Right, but that wasn't. I mean, that wasn't you know as as major as Inglourious Bastards, but right. That's when that's when the, the fringes started. That's probably when Tarantino noticed him, and then yeah. after Inglourious Bastards, that's when everybody noticed him. And Fish Tank also came out in death. It was great in that movie, too. Yeah. All right, Todd, number five. My number five is uh, Sergeant Donnie Donowitz, uh, played by Eli Roth in The Glorious Bastards, because he, he really went yacht on that one. Teddy huh. f***ing ball game. Like, the, the, the bear, bear Jew. Jew. He is an awesome character, and it's like, he looks like totally out of place with the rest of the cast, but I mean, and it's like as iconic of a character as Tarantino's had in like his last five movies, but, and he gave it to like a complete non-actor because Adam Sandler didn't want to play it for some reason, but I wouldn't (laughs) change it for anything because Eli Roth doesn't need to do much, but he really goes for it, and he is awesome, and he gets to be the one that really gets to like lay it on Hitler at the end. He's, it's, it's a great character. I, I, I love the bear Jew. Well done, well done. All right, Zach, number four. Okay, my number four character comes from Pulp Fiction, and uh, I think I've referenced this character a couple times on the podcast. I know I certainly have in texting uh, Todd. That character is played by the inimitable Eric Stoltz, and it is Lance the drug dealer. And, you know, Lance uh, lives in the Valley, and uh, apparently he specializes in heroin for vaguely racist reasons. And, uh, you know, he uh, it hangs out with his wife, Trudy, or is it Judy? I can't remember which one's which. Judy. Judy. Jody. That's right. Trudy's the one. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, he hangs out all day in his bathrobe uh, and eating uh, cereal late at night. And, um, you know, he talks with Vince, Vincent Vega, about... Vince Vick's car getting keyed, and uh, you just don't key another man's car. Um, and then, of course, people forget that he, you know, he's the reason why Vince is able to, you know, uh, inflict the syringe uh, on Mia Wallace and resuscitate her life. So, really, you could make a case that Lance, the drug dealer, is this is the true MVP of uh, Pulp Fiction. Without which, the drugs would have never been purchased, and Mia Wallace would have either died or lived, depending on your version of events. Anyway, he's a, a great character. Love Eric Stoltz. That is a good one. That is a good one. Um, that that did not make my list. Actually, I realized after making my list, little spoiler alert to my list, I realized I did not put any Pulp Fiction characters on my list. Wow. I know, I know. And, and that's a movie wow. so filled with great minor characters like like Lance, and, um, and there's a couple others that end up on my honorable mentions after I realized that, but... Uh, but yeah, um, number four on my list uh, has already been mentioned, so I won't talk too much about it. It's Hattori Hanzo from Kill Bill Volume One. Uh, oh, very good. Uh, he, yeah, he's he's amazing. He makes the the swords, and and only only Hattori Hanzo can make uh, Hattori Hanzo steel. Um, he, he's got to work a little better on who he employs in his shop, though, because the kid's an idiot. Um, <laughs> in the middle of the day. <laughs> uh, other than that, I mean, Hattori Anzo, he he's the best. He's 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 the man. So isn't yeah. it kind of surprising that his sushi isn't good? You would think that based on the quality of his swords, his sushi would also be excellent, since he's had so many years to master it in retirement. But 
You'd think so. Apparently not. You'd think or, so. or he's just so distracted by what he has in his attic that he doesn't really care about his sushi that much. It's true. He, he's always looking for the excuse to get back in the game. Then finally finds it. No, he's not. Why should I help you? <laughs> he doesn't even want to do it. <laughs> Hunting rodents. You must have big rats. To need a toy out of steel. <laughs> Huge. Vermin. Oh, yes, yes, that's what it is. All right, Todd, number four. All right, my number four is Satori Hanzo. Uh, <laughs> yes! I, I think it's awesome. He, Price approved. He, has, he, he knows that Saki is best served warm, obviously. Warm Saki? Very good! And he, like, he tosses his knife at that magnet on the wall like a G. And like no. I don't, he has like this hatred for Bill. He won't even say his name, which I think is pretty badass. And he's just like awesome way with words. Like, if on your journey you should encounter God, God will be cut. Or, like, I've created something that kills people, and in that purpose, I was a success. It's like, nobody talks that way. I mean, if you were the general, I'd be the emperor. Tori <laughs> Hanzo is, I mean, he's a, uh, per- he's a perfect character. I mean, a perfect casting. I love I Tori Hanzo. Oh, okay, I, I just need to say, though, that I actually had a decent Hattori Hanzo impression, and yours sounded like Yoda. I was, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Zach, number three. Okay, my number three comes from Jackie Brown, and uh, to- just FYI, Todd sent out a list of, of characters that were not con- that that were not considered minor characters that we could that we had to leave off the list. So I'm sort of surprised <coughs> that he made he he let this character be eligible because this character might be considered a, a main character, but wasn't on Todd's list. So I'm saying it. That is the character of Melanie, played by Bridget Fonda in Jackie Brown. I said and, that Terry overrode me. He said no, you, she's on the board. And I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> That's not quite how I remember it, but we'll go with that. <laughs> Well, Melanie is a great character. I mean, you I guess in terms of, you know, dictionary definition of fringe characters, she fully meet, meets it because really she has almost nothing to do with the movie except for being the uh she's not Ordell's girlfriend. Let's be clear about that. You thought she was my girlfriend. Um and, but uh she is a woman uh of Ordell's and she lives with him in his uh house in Hermosa Beach and uh she spends her days getting high and um watching tv she has a strange kind of checkered history where she lived in japan and apparently she's not a fan of her one-time japanese bow because she cut him out of the picture um she does have sex with robert de niro which is one of the i think one of the only sex scenes in a tarantino movie but it's a, it's, a, it's a great one and uh yeah uh, her death scene is also uh, pretty awesome too uh random note uh melanie also appears in the quasi sequel to uh, Jackie Brown called Life of Crime made in 2013 where she is played by uh, uh, Isla Fisher um, but Bridget Fonda is the one in forever Melanie and uh, she's fantastic and uh, you don't have to trust Melanie oh wait shoot I'm messing up that line uh, I don't have to trust Melanie I trust oh shoot I'm really messing it up oh this stupid copperhead's getting to me <laughs> what's the line Todd you know what I'm talking about right you don't have to trust Melanie. You just have to trust Melanie to be Melanie. That's it. Thank you. My number Shuttered three. once in the face and twice in the chest. Yeah. Or never. Any, we don't want that woman surviving on us. Anyone but that woman. <coughs> All right. Uh, number number three on my list is uh, my submission from Kill Bill Volume 2, and that is Paime, the, uh, the ancient... Uh, uh, kung fu master that uh that 
Beatrix goes and sees and is trained by, uh, played by Gordon Liu, one of the two characters that Gordon Liu played in the Kill Bill saga. Uh, Paimei's the best. Um, he, he's kind of, he's basically what Hitori Hanzo would have been if he had been, like, training ninjas instead of just making their swords. Uh, or samurai, I guess I could say. Uh, he's awesome. I, I, I love Paimei and his long, luscious beard. Uh, he's my number three. It's a good one. Yeah. Todd, number three. My number three is uh, Jody from Pulp Fiction, played by Rosanna Arquette. And it really was her and Lance. Like, if I could use both of them, I would. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, she, she's just awesome. She's got 18 piercings, all done with needles. Uh, or Vincent puts it, you know, like, the one with all the shit on her face. Uh, she's just, like, a spectator, too, in that adrenaline scene, like, sitting in for the audience. She doesn't really even know where the black medical book is or that they even have one. It's, she's just a, she's a great character. I mean, and, and her whole part really was just, like, huh. trippy. So, yeah. Jody, like, one, the best of the three Arquette Tarantino characters. All right, all right. Zach, on to number two. All right, well, number two is also my, or no, it is my choice from uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. So many great uh, minor characters in that movie. This, it, that was probably the movie that had the most to choose from, in my opinion. Um, but But I had to go with one who I mentioned not too long ago on this podcast, and that is the character of Larry, the strip club owner, uh, played by... I knew Larry that was going to be on your list. I actually think Larry may be my favorite character of all time in any movie, which is strange that he's only my number two on this list. But he's uh, he is Bud's boss, and uh, he gives Bud shit for showing up to work. And uh, I'm not the boss of the customers. I'm the boss of you. And um, he tells Bud to keep that shit kicker hat at home and uh, to talk to Rocket because she's got a job for him that involves some uh, shitty toilet water. Um, he's great. He's got a wad of cash. He tells the, the stripper to uh, be somebody, baby. I use that line a lot in my daily life, although it's not an allusion to cocaine. And uh, he's awesome. I, I, he's only in one scene in the movie, a scene that really has nothing to do with anything in the whole rest of the movie, which I guess uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I would have called pretentious and uh, meandering, but in Kill Bill Volume 2 worked beautifully. Um, so uh, I guess that's one for consistency. Anyway, Larry the Strip Club owner, Kill Bill Volume 2. But in a way, it was an important scene because, like, Bud's calendar was now clear to sit in front of his door for the next, like, three weeks because he didn't have to work. <laughs> and he had to stay up all night. That's true, and he, ha- he didn't have to go pawning more Hanzo swords for $250. Which he never did in the first place, so spoiler alert. All Although right. he could have. He probably tried to, and then he's like, eh, okay. no, I might as well keep it. That was before the, use it. before the era of Craigslist, so, you know, it's hard to do. Honestly... Would Bud have been on Craigslist? <laughs> <laughs> he does have a cell phone. He, he does, but he, he totally would have just gone to a pawn shop. There's no way he's what. What would Bud exactly. have done with a million? What would Bud have done with a million dollars if if he had gotten it actually from from L? Would he have upgraded his motorhome? <laughs> uh, I don't know. He, pro- he yeah. probably would have moved back to. You know, he probably would have moved to Amsterdam <laughs> with the Vegas. Maybe. Oh, I also liked, speaking of which, Michael Madsen's one line in One Spot Time in Hollywood. Another another great uh, shout-out to the Tarantino universe. Uh, yeah. Okay. 
number number two on my list is <clears throat> the one uh, the one character minor character that appears in multiple Tarantino stories, and that is the character of Earl McGraw, played by Michael Parks, who appears in Kill Bill Volume One, Kill Bill Volume Two, Death Proof. Uh, Planet Terror, which isn't technically a Tarantino movie, but we're going with it because it's part from of Dust Till Dawn. He's in From Dust Till Dawn. He's in. He's he plays the detective in so many different Tarantino stories, uh, and he is so perfect at it. Um, he's in a couple other movies of his too, but he's not playing this particular character. But yeah, anytime you have something taking place, kind of in the South, and there's a crime. Earl McGraw is the guy who's on the scene, and he takes care of it. Um, the The scene where he's uh, he's investigating what they think is the corpse of the bride is probably his best scene that he's done in Tarantino's world. But uh, I just love that he keeps popping back up, and so he had to be on my list. So he's my number two. Awesome. Definitely has this best sunglasses apparel of any Tarantino character. Yes, indeed. All right, Todd, All right. number two. My number two, I went with uh, Zoe Bell as Zoe Bell in Death Proof. Yes. I, I mean, I've been a big fan of hers ever since I saw her in this, and she's just like the crazy adrenaline seeker. I bet she actually came up with the idea for Ship's Mast, and like she's probably done that before, and she's probably like, hey, this is how we should uh, you know, roll up to Stuntman Mike in, the, in this movie or whatever. And she's like having the time of her life basically having her first acting role in uh, she she is a perfect Tarantino type character, and I and it's it's uh, not surprising how you know she's such a popular stunt double and now stunt coordinator on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like that character is just awesome. She has all the best lines in the in the scene in the in the bar, and you know she's awesome. Zoe Bell is is, is the perfect representation of New Zealand. <laughs> she also had a great cameo in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. She was great. Yeah, I, and I, th- she has a big impact on that movie too. Because I feel like the 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 last like fight scene in that movie, I, I was like, this feels like Death Proof kind of. I feel like this is a Zoe Bell doing her thing right now, like designing, you know, how how that a uh, can of uh, dog food is used and stuff like that. <laughs> he he's friends with Randy, so well, that makes sense. <laughs> last time I saw you, you were on a horsey. <laughs> By, by the way, is it is it just me or is Randy has to be like stuntman Mike's father or something, right? I mean, there's no way that Kurt Russell plays a stuntman in two different Tarantino films and they're not related in some way. Yeah, I'm sure they're. Yeah, I'm sure they're related. Like everyone's related. Like Hickox, I saw is related to the person that some guy that there has a bounty out on him on in a uh, in Django. Like, every character in Tarantino's universe is related to somebody else somehow. It's all happening. It's all happening. All right. Zach, you're number one. All right. Uh, my number one is from a movie, a Tarantino movie we have not mentioned yet, and uh, that movie is Reservoir Dogs. And my number one character is played by the great Lawrence Tierney, and that character is Joe Cabot, who is the... Uh, engineer the architect if you will of the diamond heist which goes terribly horribly wrong um i love lawrence tyranny in this movie uh he is 
really sort of out of touch with the rapport that all the dudes have in the movie. Um, he uh, has a, a great scene where he talks about how uh, you know you, you can't you can't let the guys give themselves their own names or else, you know, he's done that before and everyone wants to be named Mr. Black. Um, he, uh, he's really not, uh, very approving of, uh, you know, not tipping the waitress. Um, but the real reason that I have, uh, Joe Cabot as my, as my number one character, I guess it's maybe a little gimmicky, but my favorite, like, Tarantino artifact is the special edition. On the DVD, there is a short video about, uh, Tarantino hiring Lawrence Tierney to make Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, in a lot of, like, tributes to actors, older actors, they talk about how warm and loving the actor was and how great he was to work with and blah, 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 blah. In this special feature, they absolutely destroy Lawrence Tierney. And they talk about what terrible actor he was. Not, not terrible actor, but, like, how unprofessional he was, uh, how he, never remembered lines and just um how crazy stories about him like how he apparently like walked through a wall apparently like the the incredible hulk um chris penn has a very long story about how lawrence tierney took a bus to his uh house over the weekend and had barbecue with him um and uh it's uh, someone's tim roths talked about how he went to Fr musso and franks and lawrence tierney ended up with his pants down in the middle of the street i mean they just like totally destroyed the reputation of this guy but anyway I know this list is about minor characters. I do love Joe Cabot, but I really love the story of Tarantino and, and Lawrence Tierney. At one point, Lawrence, uh, Tarantino uh, had a physical altercation with Lawrence Tierney, and I wish footage of that actually existed. So, number one minor character, Lawrence Tierney. That's a great one. And, and yeah, that, that story, if you've never heard about that story, look it up. It is... Uh... It's it's a great one. It's a great one. Um, number one on my list also is going to come from Reservoir Dogs, uh, which we haven't mentioned yet, but it's not Lawrence Tierney. My number one is uh, Mr. Brown from Reservoir Dogs, played by mm. Quentin Tarantino. So this is really interesting because Quentin Tarantino, he this is his first feature film. He is writing it, he is directing it, he's this young guy given this break to make his first feature film, and what does he do? He opens it up with a ten minute scene where he gives himself a five minute monologue to start it out. I mean, what balls this guy has, and it worked, and it set the tone for everything that Tarantino has done since. And he's not a great actor, but he knows how to play this scene. You feel like he is he's given this talk to people he's encountered, uh, like, for half his life. And so he, he didn't even need to write this down. He had it in his head already, and he just kind of spewed it out. But, like I said, it set the tone for who Tarantino uh, was as a, as a director, as a writer, right off the bat. And it just so happened, he's the one that gave the monologue that set the stage for his entire career and it, it had to be my number one when thinking about minor characters in Tarantino films. It doesn't get any better than what started it all and that was Mr. Brown. So, number one, Mr. Brown, Reservoir Dogs. That's a good one. That would have been my choice from Reservoir Dogs. But Reservoir Dogs didn't make your list? Did not make my list. 
Okay. Because my number one comes from my favorite Tarantino movie, Kill Bill Volume 2, and that is Esteban Vajeo, played by Michael Parks. Uh, <laughs> mainly because, I mean, it's an astonishing performance by Parks, and he, he just is like, in the scene, he's just like toying with the bride, he's just like not answering her questions, sort of like rolling his eyes, smoking his cigarette, flattering her, reminiscing about random shit about Bill. And like he he ta- he apparently he took five year old Bill to see the postman always rings twice, which is kind of awesome. And he uh, somehow he knows everything about Beatrix, even about the pussy wagon. I'm not really sure how, but he just is because he just is like in this like random little brothel out in the middle of nowhere. He's just like the chillest, probably quietly funniest character that Tarantino ever wrote. I, I would have had Pie May on my list too if we could choose more than one. Uh, per movie because Tarantino's father figures are you know, are Bill's father figures that Tarantino wrote are the best that he's ever created and I, I think all three of them would probably have been on my list but uh, Esteban I mean, when I when I thought about the list like I was like, yeah, that's that's gotta be that's the best five minutes of any Tarantino character That's a great one You come to Esteban <laughs> And it, and it, and if you the call fact, me a Seba. and it is and it is Michael Parks. So and who appears as multiple characters in that, which like I also said, Gordon Liu also appears as multiple characters uh, in Kill Bill Volume Two. It's a great one. All right, but nobody nobody mentioned Johnny Mo though. No one mentioned Johnny Mo. Yeah, we could have mentioned Mo's Johnny Mo. I don't know he no he cares. leads a crazy eighty eight. I don't know. I think they just say that because so, it sounds cool. Okay. Uh, honorable mentions, Zach. Do you have any honorable mentions for me? I also thought. Well, it's hard because we only had one per movie, so right. I don't know. There, there were just a, a few others that I was thinking about. Um, yes, of course, Esteban Vallejo, uh would would be on my list. Rufus would be on my list from Kill Bill Volume Two as well. If we could choose multiple, I mean, characters. he's the man. He is. He is the man. Um, I was thinking about Zed from Pulp Fiction. Zed's dead, baby. Uh, Beaumont Livingston from Jackie Brown. Nice guy Eddie from Reservoir Dogs. And then if we're going the Terry's route with the Tarantino cameos, um, you got to mention Jimmy from J- uh, Pulp Fiction and uh, the answering machine voice from J- Jackie Brown, both of which are played by Tarantino. And then that weird Australian uh, uh, herder uh, in uh, Django Unchained. <laughs> I was gonna say you gotta if you're talking t- uh, cameos, you gotta mention his worst one, which was Django. Did we mention uh, any Django characters? We, must we didn't not mention ca- any Django ca- characters. Well, there's not a lot of great minor characters in that movie. No, no. I, I think the best one's probably Don Johnson, his character, Big Daddy. Is that or, his name? Yeah, yeah, or Jonah Hill. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, I have Rufus on my list also. Also, Reverend Harmony, who is the one that introduces Rufus. Uh, we always talk about how Rufus is the man. However, the Reverend in that scene is is really funny, and I, I always love him. Um, if I could pick another one from Volume 1, it would probably be Gogo Yugari. I mean, she is insane. Um if I'm going with uh, if I'm gonna if I was gonna go with a Pulp Fiction character, there were three that popped into my head: uh, Honey Bunny, uh, Marvin, and um, and uh, Steve Buscemi as the Buddy Holly waiter. Uh, just with the irony that Mr. Pink doesn't tip yet. Now in his next film, Steve Buscemi is playing the waiter that needs not tips. Marilyn Monroe because she's not much of a waitress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that Marilyn Monroe or is that uh, Jane Mamie Van Doren? Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, I, I had Beaumont on my list also from Jackie Brown. Whenever you can see Chris Tucker, it's good. And and my last uh, honorable mention is, I don't even know his name, but Mike Myers in Inglorious Bastards. I find it really funny that the last 10 years, Mike Myers has relegated himself to playing cameos in films. And his cameo is based on uh, lines that he has said or characters he has played in other of his films. I mean, the only reason he's in Inglorious Bastards is so he can look into the camera and say, Bastard. And the only reason he's in Bohemian Rhapsody is so he can talk about Bohemian Rhapsody when he headbangs to it in Wayne's World. So, I think it's kind of weird, but it worked in Inglorious Bastards because it was the first time they did it. And then when they do it in Bohemian Rhapsody, it's like, really? We're doing this again? Why? But yeah, there's my list. Todd, honorable mention. Alright, I didn't include One Spot Time in Hollywood in... in Oh yeah, process, I could have so. I could have put a bunch from there in there as well. Yeah, but uh, the ones that would have been from the other movies I didn't mention uh, in Hateful Eight, I would have chose Oswaldo Mowbray, who's played by Tim Roth, just because it's like he's so clearly doing a Christoph Waltz impression that I mean it, he had to have turned it down or something, and they just got him to do the impression of him. Okay, before uh, we go any Rose- further, speaking of Tim Roth, did you notice in the credits he was cut from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes, I noticed I, that too. I didn't notice that. What was he supposed to be? I don't know. It just said in in the like as it listed the cast, it said Tim Roth cut. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, but I like how they still they still had him build. I think it's kind of funny. I've never seen that before, where you build a guy that gets cut. Anyways, continue. Uh, I had Mr. Brown would have been my choice from Reservoir Dogs. Uh, and then I, in Jackie Brown, I would have the chicks who love guns, and oh, in okay. Django. Uh, I would have Eskimo Joe because, you know, he is the, he's pretty much the tool that makes everything happen because, you know, he's somehow gets overpriced to like $12,000 when he's not even that great of a fighter, you know? One of us should have mentioned Charlie Brown in volume one. (laughs) Charlie Brown. I thought about Sophie too. I want to know more about that character. Because she's clearly the the one of the Fox Force Five whose specialty is sex. Like I want to know why she French got Fox. that. Yeah. All right. So now it is time for us to try and predict Adam's list. Adam is uh, our fellow AlmostSideways.com contributor. He sends us his power rankings list every podcast, and we try and guess what it is. Um, and that's what our score is. Obviously, Todd knows him best because, I mean, just look at it. So uh, so there you go. All right. Zach, give me uh, your top five for Adam. All right. I feel, as a side note, I feel like Adam has been somewhat gimmicky in his last few lists. Like Merlot from Sideways was one of his entries. So this list reflects... <laughs> it was an honorable mention. <laughs> just just to, to give him a little bit of credit. This list reflects a little bit of, of a direction of gimmicky. Anyway, um, number five, I have Boss Tanaka from Kill Bill Volume 1. Number four, Reverend Harmony from Kill Bill Volume 2. Number three, Donnie Donowitz or the Bear Jew from Inglorious Bastards. Number two, The Gimp from Pulp Fiction. And number one, Madonna from Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> that would be like having Merlot on his list. Yes. Good, good job. Okay, so my list... Uh, my list for uh, for him. My number five is uh, BB Kiddo from Kibble Volume 2. Number four is Honey Bunny from Pulp Fiction. Number three, Nice Guy Eddie from Reservoir Dogs. 
Uh, number two, Gogo Yubari from Kibble Volume 1. And number one, The Bear Jew from Inglorious Bastards. Todd, what do you got? All right, number five, I have Baghead, number two, played by Jonah Hill in uh, Django Unchained. Number four, I have Gogo Yubari in uh, Kibble Volume 1. Number three, I have Mr. Brown from Reservoir Dogs. Number two, The Bear Jew. And number one, Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction. Oh, how did none of us mention, mention The it. Wolf? Wow. I don't know. I thought for sure that was Terry's number one. <laughs> wow, okay. All right. <coughs> Here we go. Adam's list. He starts it off, well, this would have been good to know. Uh, at the time he sent us the list, which was uh, yesterday morning, he says, full disclosure, I haven't seen Jackie Brown, Death Proof, or Once Upon a Time yet. Well, that really limits his Jackie list. Brown. Okay. So, uh, honorable mentions, Lieutenant Archie Hickox, uh, Michael Fassbender from Inglorious Bastards, Billy Crash, played by Walton Goggins in Django Unchained, uh, the briefcase played by a leather briefcase yeah, yeah, in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You see, you see, he likes this gimmicky shit. He, actually, he thinks it's funny. Once again, though, this is this is, this is honorable mention. I like that he wrote the briefcase played by a leather briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Uh, also on his honorable mentions, Pumpkin played by Tim Roth in Pulp Fiction. The Gimp uh, played by Stephen Hibbert in Pulp Fiction. Uh, Drexel Spivey played by Gary Oldman in True Romance. And doesn't it doesn't count. It doesn't count. None, none of these are actually in his list, but he, he lists them <laughs> as uh, honorable mentions. And then he also has uh, Santanico Pandemonium, played by Selma Hayek in From Dusk Till Dawn. Which, again, <laughs> nice. doesn't count. Doesn't count. Yeah. Um, all right, so his top five. Oh, that's a good one, too. Number five, K. Billy DJ from Reservoir Dogs. I like played that by one. Stephen Wright. Played by Stephen Wright. Number four, Jody, played by Channing Tatum in The Hateful Eight. Uh, number three, Gogo Yubari, played by Chiaki Kuriyama in Kill Bill. Number two, Jimmy, played by Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction. And I know he's going to have a Tarantino character. Number one, Sergeant Donnie Donowitz, a.k.a. The Bear Jew, played by Eli Roth in Inglorious Bastards. I got two of them. I got two also. What? How many did you get, Zach? One. Although I should I should get like a, a half credit for knowing that he was going to pull his gimmicks. You 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 would like if there was a tiebreaker, I totally would give that to you. But you you did not even get tied for. Anything, we should also so. we should also get extra points for deliberately saying things that are not on the list. Like if, if we could have predicted his from dusk till dawn pick because we know that he doesn't always follow the rules, we should get extra points for that. But none of us predicted that. But he does it in his honorable mention. He followed the rules in the that, actual that's thing. That's true. That's true. Uh, I think... All right, so, Todd, you got you got Bear Jew and Go-Go, right? Yeah. Where did you have them on your list? I had Go-Go 4 and Bear Jew 2. I had Bear Jew 1, Go-Go 2, and he had and Bear Jew wins. 1, Go-Go 3. Yeah. I think it's Terry. I think so, too. You got the Bear Jew. That's, a, that's the important one. Mm-hmm. I got, I got the right one. number one. Yeah, he had Bearju 1, yeah. Go-Go 3. And I had Bearju 1, Go-Go 2. <coughs> I think I win. Dude, that's I like three in a row, isn't it? didn't have Baghead number two. I thought for sure that would have been one of his choices. I like how he had the briefcase. That's like my favorite so far. Played by or a Cuban. leather briefcase. Or Marcellus Wallace's soul, according to some interpretations. Correct, correct. 
Now, now, really gimmicky would have been if he had like the Band-Aid on Marcellus Wallace's head. That would have been a gimmick. Yeah, or or the little toe. <laughs> yep. Okay. Man, I haven't won one of these in forever. I know. I've been I'm... stuck at thirteen point something. Terry's been dominating the last few weeks. I know, I know. I'm making a comeback. You just know here. Adam so well. You put so much thought into these lists, I know. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, th- I threw this together in about 30 seconds before we started recording. I was a little rushed going into this podcast, but uh, hey, maybe I should do that more often. It's when I put that's a lot the, of thought into it. That's the key with it. Adam. Yeah, it's, it's, it's when I don't put a lot of thought into it that I, I get myself in trouble. Or and that's when I do put too much thought. Mr. Wolf. Yeah, and we all over... None of us had Mr. Wolf. That's weird. That is just weird. Yeah, ni- nice not including Pulp Fiction there, Terry. Yeah, I should have. Screw it. I'm ca- taking off Lieutenant Hickox. Wolf is my number five. I'm just going with it. I, I think Terry should lose a point on our power rankings for not including Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah. Pulp Fiction in Volume 2, I could have had eight characters. Like, I mean, I was like, man, this would be my entire list, but I had to choose the ones from other movies. I thought I had a pretty good stab of saying he was going to have BB on his list. Yeah, I thought about BB as well. That wasn't a bad pick. Okay. Well, moving on into our trivia section. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And we have a lot of uh, discussion to have. Before we actually get to our trivia game for this week, which I believe, Todd, you are hosting, correct? Yeah. Okay. So, um, we have some uh, some movies to review from uh, past trivia sessions that we have, uh, for those that have lost. So, Zach has a movie to review, I have a movie to review, and uh, we have a third movie that we are all going to review... Um, as, uh, as Zach said on the last podcast, we needed to, uh, come to the stable it because it came up in random conversation. So, uh, <laughs> we're going to start with, uh, with the, uh, the, the longest it has been since, since this movie has been assigned. And that is Zach. Uh, Zach, what did you have to watch? I, ha- I had to watch the uh, the wonderful one-two pairing. It was either or. Uh, the, the two movies that everyone associates with each other, uh, Top Gun or Cold Souls. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch both of them or just one of them? No, I only watched Cold Souls, believe it or not. Um, but I'll get to Top Gun someday. Someday. Uh, t- I know Tarantino's a fan of Top Gun, too. Um, anyway, Cold Souls is the movie that Todd assigned to, to me. Um, it's sort of an interesting movie. I remember I watched a lot of movies in summer of 2009. I was like in the theater a lot that summer for some reason, and I saw the preview for Cold Souls. I must I, like it must have been like ten times. Okay, it was one of those previews that like uh, like Terry's favorite movie uh, or um, Vantage Point. Vantage Point. Thank you. I could I almost like memorized the entire trailer to Cold Souls. Um, so actually watching this movie again, I, I remembered. I had not seen the trailer in a long time, but I remembered many of the moments in that in the trailer uh the movie stars paul giamatti playing himself uh paul giamatti uh and he is an actor um and although the movie never references sideways sadly it should uh 
but he is working on a production of uh, Vanya, the Chekhov play, and uh, he's feeling depressed and down about himself. So he goes into a, uh, I guess, I guess he would say experimental clinic that uh, is run by David Strathairn. And in the clinic, they do a medical pr uh, process that removes your soul, which he does. And then through a series of uh, sort of incidents that goes along, he realizes that it was a mistake to give up his soul. He finds out that his soul was illegally uh, trafficked to Russia, which is where he goes. The movie has a zany premise. It's definitely a Charlie Kaufman wannabe. This movie feels so 2000s. It feels like this is the exact kind of movie that, that came out in the 2000s. It's like a mix of Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Minds, Connected to New York, and being John Malkovich. Uh, it has all those components in it. So it, it, it's hard to rate the movie on that because those are three better movies of this movie. Um, it has some good moments. Paul Giamatti is always likable in this movie. It, I wish it was more about the actual reason for why someone wa would want to disembowel their soul. And instead, the movie kind of opts for this whole kind of checkered plot about the, the, the trafficking, the illegal trafficking and the mules of souls between Russia and the United States, which frankly isn't as interesting. Um, so I give it a, a, a two and a half star review. Um, I like Giamatti. I know Todd likes this movie quite a bit. It, was, it wasn't terrible, but uh, I, I was more satisfied with the trailer. Yeah, well, I saw it though. Well, the, yeah, the only reason I assigned it to you, kind of, was because you told me this. You should make me watch Cold Souls, or else I won't watch it. Otherwise, so. It, and it was on <laughs> Amazon my, Prime. That was a good reason. It, it's my number ten of two thousand nine. I I really liked the movie a lot. I I think it. I I didn't really think it was that derivative as you said, but you know, eh, whatever. <laughs> We don't we don't really agree very much anymore. I, I feel like no, no, not so much. <laughs> All right. So the I have not seen Cold Souls by the way, so I'm not even gonna chime in at all. I'm, but I'm gonna move on to the movie I had to watch. So Todd uh, assigned to me a movie because Todd just dominates trivia apparently, uh, and I had to watch the 2009 film The Messenger, uh, starring Ben Foster and Woody Harrelson. And this is uh, a movie that is about uh, two uh, army officers who have to, uh, their job, they're assigned to deliver the news to families that uh, their family member has been killed. And uh, Woody Harrelson has been on the job for quite some time. He's training Ben Foster, who's a wounded warrior that has come home, uh, can't really go back to the front. So he has been assigned this job to finish out his uh finish out his enlistment uh it is it is a, a tragic tragic movie um just it, yeah it is it is a depressing film watching them have to go through this and and the the physical the emotional toll it takes on these guys having to deliver this news over and over again to these families um it, it's it's like, uh, I, as I was watching, I was thinking, this is kind of like if you take Up in the Air and crank up the the stakes on it like ten times. Of, of just those, those scenes of awkwardness where you have to tell everyone their entire life has just changed. Um, and uh, I love how they get some amazing masterclass actors to play some of the the uh the grieving family members so you have a, a small bit part from steve buscemi playing the father of a killed soldier and then uh one that ends up playing a much bigger role is you have samantha morton playing the wife of a uh of a fallen soldier 
and uh, and it, it's so rare to see her in anything anymore. She doesn't seem to pop up very often, but when she does, she always gives an amazing performance. <clears throat> ben Foster, this was really one of his first like leading roles, and I still have no idea why he doesn't get more of them, because he is amazing. Um, however, as I was watching this, I'm going to admit, as I was watching him walk around in like his, his, uh, his camo clothes and stuff, I'm like, I have a feeling... That is probably what Soldier Ben Brown looked like when he was in his uniform. <laughs> is Ben Foster probably. in the Messenger? <laughs> um, but yeah, Ben Foster is amazing. Woody Harrelson got nominated for an Oscar for it, and it was very well deserved. Uh, I thought some of the story kind of lost lost its way a little bit at the end, but uh, these characters were amazing. The movie definitely had the impact that it was supposed to have i'm giving it three and a half stars it was a it was a very very well done movie about a very difficult topic to talk about yeah that's my number one of nine uh 2009 and yeah i that movie shook me and it only like proceeded to do more so in like as time went by like it's and like you said steve buscemi like that is the best like couple minute performance i think i've ever seen like it is he is unreal, and, and nothing. He's never done anything quite like that before. I, I wanted to see more scenes like that of just let's bring out more, like big big time actors, kind of like what what happened at Once Upon a Time. Let's bring in the big time actors to play the small bit parts to make them such memorable scenes. And those scenes are so powerful that it could have used used some great ones. And like you said, that that scene with him is amazing. And that first scene where we see Samantha Morton, I I didn't think she was going to come back around again. Like she did, and I didn't. Yeah, I didn't necessarily care for that storyline as much. But that initial scene you have with her is outstanding as well. I feel like that'd be like almost like a TV show, though. If you had like the, uh, so many of those things, like each episode's a new family that they have to like uh, notify and stuff. I feel like you could have a whole series about that. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. The, the, this this screams like. If this came out today, it would have been like an HBO miniseries. It wouldn't have been a movie. Okay. So that is that is The Messenger. Zach, have you seen The Messenger? I have. I have. I remember liking it. I should rewatch it. Um, I don't... I didn't... It was, I was not as profoundly moved by it as Todd was, but uh, hearing about it again makes me uh, want to revisit it. All right. Okay. So... For our last movie, uh, in what we're gonna we're just gonna call it the come to the stable section, um, <laughs> because that that's uh, that's really what what uh, the name of this segment come to the stable come come to the Sister stable Alaska come to the stable stable and hear the story of a small obscure film that we uncovered in a trivia game that we all decided we needed to watch and for this one. Uh, we were talking, I forget exactly how the conversation went, but we, uh, in our Forrest Gump uh, deep dive, uh, oh, it came, it came up that, that there was, we were talking, about how, we were talking about how politics uh, can, how the politics of, of just the Academy can play a role in nominations. And we brought up that in 2013, uh, this small Christian film, Alone Yet Not Alone, uh, had a best original song nomination that was rescinded because of tampering in the voting leading to the nominations. So we're like, well, none of us have actually seen it. So let's watch Alone Yet Not Alone and see what it actually is about. So Todd, since you're the one that hasn't had to describe a movie yet, 
you're going to get the joy of uh, talking about Alone Yet Not Alone first. So tell us all about it. Okay, this movie is directed by Ray Bankston. I've never heard of him before, uh, this movie. Uh, it is set in 1755 Pennsylvania, and it's the story of a uh, the Leninger family. Laning, Laninger family, uh, a religious family who is comes to America for like the freedom to practice their religion, and there's a clash with the Native Americans, the British who are trying to colonize, and the uh, French who are just after like new resources in the new world. Uh, two of the daughters of the family are taken captive by uh, the Native Americans, and they have to rely on their faith to survive as they're getting integrated into the lifestyle of the of the uh, Native Americans. There's some, like, really, really bad acting in this movie. Uh, bad attempted <laughs> accents, for sure. Um, the, the British, I mean, accents are, I mean, they're atrocious. And the Native Americans are portrayed as, like, savages, and they have no real distinguishing features about them to make them more than just, like, caricatures. I, I like the setting and backdrop of the movie, though. Like, you don't really get a lot of movies from this time, especially not, like, true stories. Uh, the survival stuff is kind of okay, but it's really hard to take seriously when the drama is just on the verge of laughable. Uh, there's, like, this really big swelling score that that's supposed to heighten the emotion, but it just, like, distracts more than it actually helps. It, it felt felt like a 1950s movie or something and and how it was shot and acted i have no idea where the seven million dollar budget went because you can't really tell seven million dollar budget really (laughs) yeah yeah i saw that i was like i I have no idea (laughs) i i don't know what they possibly could have spent that on uh it's hard to watch and stay engaged in it is a one star movie all right uh i'm gonna go next uh yeah i'm right there with todd this movie was horrible um, as, as I'm watching it, th- this is what was going through my head. Th- this is this is not a theatrical release movie. This is not even a straight to straight to video movie. It's not a TV movie. This is like a straight to museum movie. Like this is the type of movie that they would make for like if they made a museum about about like this what happened with this family. This is the movie they would make to show at the museum to talk about the story. Like, I feel like I've seen this movie before in a museum. That That's the quality of, of, uh, of movie this is. Like Todd said, I don't think I've ever seen a French and Indian war pick before. That's a, like, that's a period you don't necessarily have movies about. I'm giving it one star, and the one star is uh, for the halfway decent song that almost got nominated. It was okay. It was okay. And, and, and it does what the one thing I will say about it is the the songs that get nominated so often are, oh, they're the song that played during the credits. This song actually has an integral part of the of the plot. And so that's one thing I'll give I'll give to it. Is it has a song it's, that it's actually come to the stable it did too, and it wasn't it was like a, it wasn't even an original song. It wasn't even an original <laughs> song. You're right, yeah. Yeah. So but, so the uh, rule with our the rule with our come to the stable segment has to be that there has to be an <laughs> integral song. It was, it was. It had to be nominated for original song. Yeah, somewhere and, in the and movie. It'd be a controversial okay. choice. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, Zach, are you in agreement here? I mean, sh- how? I'm kind of shocked uh, 
you're telling me this movie wasn't thrice approved? Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm right there with you. Uh, I, this movie was appalling. Uh, it was it pro- probably audiences would have been too smart for it, you know, in the D.W. Griffith era. Um, I like how when the blonde daughter is captured, they show her integration with the Native American tribe by dyeing her hair dark to remind us, oh, now she's become a true Native American. Um, and, I think the uh, idea was they could hide her. I think that was that was more the idea of that. Not I didn't know that hair, hair dye existed in the in the 1750s. I also well, find it amazing. Well, it wasn't that, very effective when one bath but, washed it out. And uh, you would have to assume that did, does that mean that she didn't take baths for ten years? That that her hair always so. stayed that dark. <laughs> Um, yes, so this movie was terrible. I'm giving it a half star. Actually, I do think the cinematography in this movie was not terrible. I can see where some of the production value went, but, uh, wow, this movie was terrible, and I'm glad I, I paid no money to, to see it. I do think that the story behind the song's nomination is interesting. The reason we brought it up was, you know, tampering. The, the guy who wrote the song was, like, a member of the Academy um, executive branch of songs, and he basically spent spammed all the voters in 2013 saying, hey, you should vote for my song. Um, actually, it wasn't even that overt. I, I did a little bit of a deep dive on it. it. It wasn't that he was even telling them that. It was that he knew the number of the song, of the 300 songs that were, were nominated. And, and I guess Oscar voters aren't really supposed to know, uh, they aren't supposed to associate the, the, the number with the movie. It's supposed to be sort of blind voting. On a, on a side note, there were like 300 songs submitted for the 2013 Best Song Race. Five of them came from a movie called Kama Sutra 3D. <laughs> I, I did that. I, I saw that doing a deep dive for, about this movie, which I, I have to admit, I, sp- I spent a good deal of the hour and 41 minutes of this movie uh, doing some internet research on uh, Kama Sutra 3D. I, I, well, I probably I, shouldn't say that out of respect. <laughs> I spent the majority of this, uh, or this movie watching, I watched the majority of this movie sitting in an airport on my iPad. <laughs> That's just depressing. <laughs> that has to be the most depressing thing I've ever heard. Uh, well, and so and watching this, I mean, this movie was, like we said, this movie was garbage and the song was okay. But I, it just shows how weird it is what songs get picked and where these random off-the-wall nominations come from. I remember a few years ago, and this was a small Christian movie that this came out of. I remember a few years ago, I even texted Todd about this. Uh, there was a small Christian movie that came out called Priceless, and it was uh, it starred in uh, one of the brothers that make up for King and Country, and was directed by the other brother. And they had the, a song that was written for this movie called Priceless. That was an awesome song that played on Christian radio for like over a year, was tops of the charts and everything. Didn't even sniff the Oscars, and I sent it to Tom like this is this is the type of song I could totally see getting getting at least into the into the no- consideration in, for a nomination because it is this hit song. So many people know the song and they wrote it for this movie that they made and it didn't even get, get considered when they actually are names and they're actually, you know, people that in the industry that people know. And yet you have alone yet, not alone, who is directed by someone no one's ever heard of and no one will ever hear of and stars a bunch of people that no one's ever heard of and no one will ever hear of. And uh, somehow the song gets up into the top five out of the 300. It's just crazy. 
Oh, and, and by the way, guess what songs weren't nominated? Guess what got nominated over? Any song from Inside Lewin Davis. How, uh, how horrible is that? Yeah. <laughs> horrible. Horrible. Not all the songs were original, though, right? Only the Mr. Kennedy song was original, I think. Well, e- I, whatever was el- still, though, just from a symbolic uh, I think place, the song he sings at the end is, is original. That's one of his songs, I think. Think. Or hang, hang me, oh hang me. That's that has to be original, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I hate the original song category though. It really is just like the popular movies if they have an original song or a documentary. That, those are pretty much what make up the category every single year. Or animated movies. I was gonna say Disney. Disney always has to have like one. Over under one and a half songs from Frozen Two that get nominated this year. <coughs> under. Yeah. yeah, I would say under also. Okay. When was the last time we had a double nomination in song? Uh, Todd knew, you know, 1984 Best Supporting Actor double nomination. You don't know uh, the Rose Reese Best Song nomination? <laughs> you're, you're failing. It wasn't that long ago, I feel like, though. I and mean, I, I know, like, Princess I know, like, and the Enchanted like and three. The Muppets. The Muppets, probably. Muppets only had one. That was the year there were only two nominated songs. The Muppets and oh, Rio. No, there was three. There were three. <laughs> there were three and two from the Muppets. I thought there was only one. Or there was only... There's Manor Muppet and the other one. The, uh... How did A Star Is Born not have multiple songs nominated? That's a shame. Yeah. I th- I'm going to say Princess and the Frog. I think it had like three nominated songs. What year was that? I don't know. 2009? Let me, let me Are we just this. talking everything 2009 today? Apparently, apparently, <laughs> it's our it's our yeah. It's a big it's a big year. Here. Cold Souls and Glorious Bastards, The Messenger. You know, lot, okay. lots of big stuff happening that that year. So let's see here. Maybe our next deep dive should be for oh, that year. How about how about two years ago? La La Land had two. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I knew it hadn't been that long. And then before that, you had. Let's see here. Was the Moon Song nominated from her that year, Todd? Yeah, the, the Moon Song was nominated in 2013. It was so that year. It was Let It Go from Frozen, Happy from Despicable Me Two, the Moon Song from her, and Ordinary Love from Mandela: Long Walk to Freedom. And that got nominated because it was U two, trying to get Bono yeah. an Oscar. Those first three songs are pretty good, though. But that, that's yeah. a fairly strong caliber. Uh, 2011 was only two nominees: uh, Man or Muppet from oh. the Muppets and Real and Rio from Rio. Um. Yeah, and then Between Enchanted, Princess and the Frog Enchanted. had two, uh, but lost to Crazy Heart. Slumdog had two. Jai Ho was a winner, right? Jai Ho was a winner, and Osaya was the other one. And and the other, there were only three nominees that year: the two from Slumdog and Down to Earth from Wally. One of my favorite. Enchanted things had three. Enchanted had three, and oh. it lost to Falling Slowly. One of my favorite things about the best song category is how it enables crappy films to say that they've been Oscar nominated, like uh, Young Guns 2, the Oscar nominated movie, mm-hmm. or like, uh, uh, you know, Thank God It's Friday. That was the original one. Oscar winner, Thank God It's Friday. I, I think I think best makeup has become more uh, notorious yeah. than that. Like Norbit. Norbit best, and uh, Click. And yeah, well, see, you too. never actually give it to the best song though. Like I'm re- like they opened the Oscars with "Happy," and it wasn't the winning original song. Well, just like they opened the Oscars with me too. 
The only Oscars with what was it from uh, from uh, Trolls? It, the Justin Timberlake song. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean the, these are like Billboard top songs, objectively better songs, and they give it to the movie that they like more. I, I, I still think I still would have loved to see Everything Is Awesome from the Lego Movie be an Oscar winner, just so Andy Samberg can have an Oscar. But I think there would have been a riot if Glory from Selma had lost. Oscar winner common. Oscar winner common and John Legend. Okay. Uh, let's move on from that now and get into our actual trivia game. So, Todd, tell us what, uh, tell us what we're doing today. Uh, we're doing some Tarantino trivia. It's gonna kind of be, uh, a little messy, I feel like, uh... But we're going to go one person yeah. at a time. So, Can, can we preface this? To Terry, weren't you on a plane today? Yes, yes. And I, I was on a plane I spent today. Fif- I spent 15 hours moving my house today. So <laughs> this is going to be fun. I spent like 11 hours watching Orange is the New Black. So I'm prepared to do this too. All right. Uh, since Terry's totally, one. Those totally go, go hand in hand. <laughs> Okay, Since Terry ahead. won power rankings, supposedly, uh, he, he's going to go second. <laughs> I'm going to go second? So. Okay, so I unplug? Yeah. Unplug and go home? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Rocket Man. Rocket Man. <laughs> awesome. All right, Zach. Uh, I, I have, have no idea what that reference was. What's Rocket Man? Rocket Man, the, the movie with Harlan Williams. Uh, oh, okay. Where he, like, goes to Mars. <laughs> A lot of times I just don't ask about your references. I just That's because it's a stupid movie Terry and I watched when we were <laughs> kids. Uh, okay, Tarantino trivia. Uh, it's going to be interesting. There are 34 possible points. Uh, oh, my God. Five categories. Uh, I'll oh let you God. keep going until you get one wrong. One of them, if you get more than a couple, I will be shocked. Okay, the first category is what are the top five domestic box office Tarantino movies? Doesn't have to go in order, but if you get one that is not in the five, then you get a, then you have to stop. Okay, um, Django Unchained. That's correct. That's number one. Uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is number three. Uh, Inglorious Bastards. That's number two. Uh, Kill Bill Volume One. That's number four. And. Uh, Killable Volume 2. That is number five. You got all five. Sweet. Okay. Uh, name the other four directors who worked on Grindhouse. Oh, uh, Eli Roth. That's one. Uh, Rob Zombie. Two. Robert Rodriguez. Three. Uh, shoot, who's the other one? Uh, I'll know it when I hear it. Uh, I give up. Uh, Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. He did uh, next. Next, or, of course. Was that no? Not next. Uh, no, it was uh, don't, don't. Oh yes. <laughs> not next. I'm an idiot. Okay. Wrong four letter word. Uh, what is the only one of? Tarantino's directed movies that the, he does not have an acting credit or uncredited role. 
Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, credited or uncredited role? Um, uh, Hateful Eight? It was Kill Bill Volume 1. Okay. Okay. Uh, who are, other than, not including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who are the actors who have uh, appeared in three or more Tarantino-directed movies? There are a total of ten. Oh, wow. Okay. Tim Roth? Tim Roth has been in three. Uh, so, I'm sorry, we're not including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, not including. Okay. Mike, Michael Madsen? Michael Madsen has been in four. Oh, and I should say, uh, a Kill Bill I consider two movies in this. Okay. Good to know. Uh, Uma Thurman? She has been in three. Samuel L. Jackson? Six. Wow, okay. Um, Michael Bowen? Three. Wow. What's the third one? I can only think of Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. I think he was in Django. Okay. Uh, Zoe Bell? She's been in three. Uh... Does Tarantino count as an actor himself? Yeah, he's been in three. Okay. Very meta. Okay. Um, uh, you have... What, Bruce Dern? Three? No. No. Yeah, Bruce Dern is wrong. Yeah, Bruce Dern is wrong. Okay, uh, the other ones were... Yeah, okay. yeah I give up. Uh, Michael Parks, James Parks, and Michael Bacall. Yeah, I wouldn't have got those. Even though we talked about Michael Parks earlier and how many movies he's been in, <laughs> well, uh, both you know both Kill Bill movies, but what's the other one? Michael Parks been in four. Uh, what what else was he in? Okay, I, I don't care. We, we, can, we can move on. I don't know. Okay, can... that sounds right. Okay, yeah. And now there there right. are fourteen movies that Tarantino produced or wrote but did not direct. Name is Michael <laughs> again. Okay, he, he so movies that he produced or wrote but did not direct. Right. So, are we counting the segment from Four Rooms? No. Or like segments from that. movies? Okay, so se- so not segments though, right? We're just talking no. feature length. Yeah, yeah, feature length movies that he had was a screenwriter. Okay. Or okay. That all right, all right, I got it. Uh, okay, true, true romance. That's one. Uh, Natural born killers. Two. From dusk till dawn. Three. Uh, that he was a producer or director on. So, like, like Hero, does he count as a producer on that film? No, because he didn't produce it. He, I mean, he brought it to America. That this doesn't count as producing. Okay. Um, producer. I guess I'll let you keep going. <laughs> Uh, well, it was a it was a clarifying question. I feel like he was listed as producer on that film, but whatever. Um, produced or wrote, but did not direct. Uh, yeah, I got nothing. All right. Well, I'll name all these after Terry doesn't get him. Uh, so we'll bring him back. So you got a total of. 18 points out of 34. That was actually a decent showing. 
Okay. And Terry is back. All right, is Nesbitt in command now? I don't know what you're... That's right, I'm doubling down on the Rocketman references. Oh. I actually asked Todd about that. I was like, what is Terry talking about? (laughs) By the way, Todd, I think I just noticed that you're wearing a t-shirt I bought you for, like, 4th of July last year. Yeah, I'm surprised it took you that long to realize that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been hunched over. I haven't been able to see all of it. It's like a 1970s New England Patriots jersey. That's what it looks like. I want you to be to be your me. That's what it says. <laughs> okay, Terry, okay, we are doing Tarantino podcast, trivia. Okay. Yes. And there are thirty-four possible answers. Five questions. Uh, five questions and thirty-four <laughs> possible answers. Yeah, and okay. one of them. Yeah, you're not going to get more than a few <coughs> on one of them, but uh, we we shall see how this goes. Do I get an exact score or no? Yeah, if you want to. Not my tone. Yeah, leave it a mystery. Got, leave it a mystery. Leave it a mystery. All right. I did not get all thirty-four. Okay, I figured that as much. A fact. Okay. The first question is: What are the top five domestic box office Tarantino movies? Now, you, I'll let you go until you get one wrong. If you get one wrong, then you can't go any further. So you can't keep guessing as many answers as there are. Okay, so top five domestic box office. I'm going to go Inglorious Bastards. That's number two. Django Unchained. That's number one. Mm. Kill Bill Volume 2. That's number five. Pulp Fiction. That's number three. And Hateful Eight. That is incorrect. Is it volume uh, one? Volume one is number Dang one. it. It was down to those two. Okay, who are the other four directors who worked on Grindhouse? Uh, Robert Rodriguez. Right. Um, Eli Roth. Correct. I want to say Rob Zombie. That's correct. And the last one... Oh, gosh. Uh, I got nothing. I don't know. It was Edgar Wright. Oh, gosh. I didn't. Directed. I would never have gotten that. Don't. He directed... <laughs> now I want to see Don't even more than ever, knowing it was Edgar Wright. Okay. Who? What is the only one of Tarantino's movies where he does not have an acting credit or uncredited role? Uh, Hateful Eight? That's incorrect. It was Kill Bill Volume 1. Okay. What was he in okay. Hateful Eight? Something. I don't remember. Okay. Nope. That really was too. just like me looking at his IMDb page and, you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> figure out some questions. Fair okay. enough. Uh, so, not including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who are the actors who have appeared in three or more Tarantino-directed movies, and this makes uh, Kill Bill two movies. And Kill there Bill are ten is two possible- movies. Yeah, and okay. there are ten actors who have been in three or more. Samuel Jackson. Not including What's Fun Time in Hollywood. Okay, Samuel Jackson. 
Yeah, he's been in six. Um. Well, Michael Parks. He has been in four. Uma Thurman. She's been in three. Oh. Um, there's ten of these that have been in three or more? Yep. Okay. Crap, I keep going back Five. to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Michael four. Madsen? He's been in four. Okay. Um, see, I don't remember. I'm having trouble remembering a couple of them that well. Five. Dang, this is going to kill me, too. Four. Three. Two. Steve Buscemi? That's not correct. Yeah, he was only in two. But I couldn't think of any others. Okay, Michael Bowen was in three. Michael Bacall was in three. Uh, Tim Roth was in three. He was in three? Uh, what was the third? Oh, gosh, dang it. Are you kidding? Uh, crap. Quentin Tarantino oh. was in three. <laughs> Zoe, Bell, Zoe Bell was in three. Michael Par- or James Parks, who is the other cop with Michael Parks all the time, he was in five. Tim Roth. Goodness gracious. Okay. Now, That's the only one I feel movies. bad about not getting. <laughs> okay. There are 14 movies that were produced or written by Tarantino, but he did not direct. Uh, name as many as again. True Romance. That's one. From Dusk Till Dawn. Two. Does Planet Terror count? No. It has to be a feature-length movie. I don't um, even know if he actually produced that. He might have. Okay. Um, as is written or produced. Right. There's fourteen of them. Uh, natural born killers, right? That's correct. Yeah. I'm gonna go with. He produced it. Spy Kids. That is not correct, but you're kind of on the right track. Robert uh, Desperado? No. Okay, well, Zach wins 18 to 14. Duh. The other movies were some movie called Past Midnight, and then there was a Roger Avery movie called Killing Zoe. Yeah. Some God Said Ha. That's a good movie. From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money, From Dust Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. He produced both of those? Yeah. Gosh. Uh, Iron Monkey, and then you got Hostel and Hostel Part 2, the Johnny Knoxville movie, Daltrey Calhoun, Freedom's <laughs> Fury, and some movie called Hell Ride. See, I was going to say the Jet Li movie Hero. Didn't he, like, produce that That's what I American said. release? That's what I said. That's what a producer does, yeah. right? That's what I, I should, didn't. I should have gotten points for that because it was like a, it was like Quentin Tarantino presents Hero. Yeah. That's how it was always built. That's what that's what a producer does. And then you could count like Chunking Express too, but I, that's not he doesn't. He didn't bring that to America. <laughs> I had a feeling that I, wasn't going to count. That's why I never went with it. I always get I always get hung up on those technicalities, so I just stayed away from them. Yeah. All so right. Zach wins trivia, so he gets to choose something for somebody to watch, I guess. 
and and it doesn't sound like currently it doesn't sound like we have a stable movie so we'll uh we'll get to that maybe next podcast we'll come up with one princess and the frog all right no. unless we want to watch the spring dust told on uh sequels <laughs> uh i'm good i'm good all right time for quote of the day strawberries not the cheese Womack with a little sex in it quote of the day zach you won you get to go first i have two quotes i have a serious quote and a not serious quote i'm going to start with my not serious quote which comes from the uh the behind the scenes look at uh lawrence tierney on the set of uh reservoir dogs and i'm quoting tarantino's uh uh line when he told him to get off the set he said fuck you you fat you're fired take that fat ass of yours off my fat set or wait, I threw too many fats in there. Anyway, that, that'll be fun to edit out. But my real quote uh, comes from uh, Pauline Kael uh, describing uh, Jean-Luc Godard. And, and Tarantino says that this quote describes his style. And it's uh, uh, Pauline Kael wrote, It's as if a couple of movie-crazy young Frenchmen were in a coffee house and they've taken a banal American crime novel and they're making it a movie of it, not based on the novel, but based on the poetry they read between the lines. And that describes this podcast. Always about the poetry between the lines, right? Whatever you say, Zach. Okay. Yeah, I like the the fats. Huh. Get your fat ass off my set line better. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, my uh, my quote is uh, coming from Inglorious Bastards. Uh, it's a quote I referenced a little earlier. I actually have two of them. I, I'm going to do this one first, so. And uh, this is uh, Lieutenant Archie Hickox in the bar. Uh, he's just been uncovered as as a fake German soldier. By, uh, by Major Dieter Hellstrom, who also is an, another amazing character um, that I could have put on here. But um, he, he realizes that everything, this is all going to go south in a hurry, and he's probably not going to make it out of this bar. And so here's, here's what he says. He says, well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking the kings. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Seeing as how I may be rapping on the door momentarily. And he drinks his scotch. He goes, I must say, damn good stuff, sir. Now, about this pickle we find ourselves in. I would appear, it would appear there's only one thing left for you to do. Stiglitz. And Stiglitz goes, say a Wiedersehen to your Nazi balls. And he shoots him from under the table and the bloodbath and gunfire start. It's just, it's a perfect example of great, great Tarantino writing there. And then the other one also comes from Inglorious Bastards. I named Inglorious Bastards one of my funniest films of the 2000s, and this is a quote that shows why. This is as they're getting ready for the final the the final going to the movies with uh, uh, to uh, take out Hitler, and Lieutenant Aldo Rain, he's trying to figure all this out. They're posing as Italian, uh, Italian filmmakers. He says, well, I speak the most Italian, so I'll be your escort. Donowitz speaks the second most, so he'll be your Italian cameraman. Omar speaks third most, so he'll be Donnie's assistant. And Omar says, I don't speak Italian. And Aldo says, like I said, third best, so just keep your mouth shut. In fact, why don't you start practicing right now? <laughs> so, it's, it's, a, awesome. it's a great line, and that, that character, Aldo Rain might be the funniest character that, uh, that Tarantino's ever written. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Todd, give me your quote. Uh, my quote is from Tarantino himself talking about his movies. He says, Sure, Kill Bill's a violent movie, but it's a Tarantino movie. You don't go to Metallica and ask the f***ers to turn the music down. 
And I feel like that kind of describes this podcast. It's like, you know, these episodes are kind of long, but they're almost sideways episodes. Like, you know what you're getting into. Exactly. Exactly. All right. And uh, with that, uh, we will draw this podcast to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll hope to be back to you next week with another deep dive. We haven't quite decided what we're getting into yet, but uh, when we find out, we'll uh, let you know. Uh, again, subscribe, rate, review, and we will catch you next time. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.